This series comes with a content note. Some of what you'll hear is distressing. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. In this series, abuse perpetrated by an intimate partner is described as family violence, domestic abuse or domestic violence. We acknowledge that production took place on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. We can't pick and choose when we fall in love. And then when we give that power of where we live and how we live to somebody else, that can be abused and be a form of coercive control. My name's Tharang Chavla, and my sister Nikki was killed by her former partner in 2015. I'm a writer, lawyer and anti-violence advocate. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home. Isolation is probably the most common thing that we see in abusive relationships. Moo Bolch is the chair of Our Watch and an advisor to Combank's Next Chapter, a program committed to ending financial abuse in the context of domestic and family violence. Moo's also a frontline worker who's been working in the sector for decades. Coercive control is really that insidious behaviour which often just gradually chips away at somebody's sense of self, their ability to make decisions, their ability to feel as if they're in control of their lives. Isolation occurs when an abusive partner inserts themselves between the victim and the outside world, whether that's psychologically, physically, spiritually, culturally or financially. It might be doing things like picking fights with family, friends or members. It might be with a queer community setting, for example, saying, I don't like it when we go out to parties or social events because you flirt with other people or I don't like the ideas that those people are putting in your head. Within a religious or cultural setting, it might be saying, how can you believe all of that stuff that you're being told within that institution? That might be a very gradual thing, a very slow kind of undermining of those relationships, or it might be an absolutely explosive, I'm not going to be in the same room as your mum anymore. Isolation undermines a person's autonomy and self-worth. It shrinks their world down, stripping them of independence and avenues for support. In turn, this makes them more dependent on their perpetrator and more vulnerable to manipulation and control. Isolation is the thing that keeps people there and has them living in fear for a really long period of time. It really embeds those messages around if you're being told that you're worthless and you're stupid and nobody else is going to want you and no one's going to believe you. We've all witnessed or been party to the honeymoon phase of a new romance. When a couple becomes so caught up in the thrill of one another that they shut themselves away from the outside world. Isolation can look and feel rather similar. Elizabeth Shaw, CEO of Relationships Australia New South Wales, says that the warning signs arise when instead of wanting to enter your world, a new partner tries to shrink it. Seeing a partner with others is a really great way to start to check if you want to be with them yourself. One of the ways you do know that the relationship's going to work out for you just in the most ordinary of times is how you all fit together. You know, do they generally fit into your social circle? Alex Bunton is a professional basketballer who met her partner, who we'll call Lucas, at the height of her sporting career. While Alex had just won a World Cup silver medal, she was also vulnerable. She'd been through a breakup and also multiple knee surgeries. She was finding herself again and also worried about her future. He swooped in and kind of made the world seem like it was a better place for me and I was 
completely taken from the moment that he wanted to ask me out for coffee. It felt like a relationship that should have taken a couple of months to form happened within weeks and I was moving in with him. I was changing my life completely to be with him. Alex had moved to Sydney not long before she met her partner, so she didn't have many friends in the city. She was extremely close with her family, who lived in Canberra, but slowly he discouraged her from going home to visit them. He didn't want me to talk to them. He convinced me that I didn't need my family and if I ever had anything to say about them, he'd make me feel bad that I was saying anything about them. I didn't want to let them know what was happening. I always considered myself to be independent and a strong woman and have my own voice, but slowly it turned into I had no voice. Bianca is a writer and an avid reader. That's also not her real name. And while we can't tell you too much, she's passionate about justice and her professional life is centred around helping others. It's been a rather long time now, but she was once in love with a man who hurt her. For legal reasons, we'll call him Simon. He would repeatedly tell me that it was him and I against the world. At the beginning of a relationship, pseudo-caring comments like, it's us against the world, might seem romantic. And comments like, that friend isn't good for you, might seem like a new partner really cares. But Elizabeth Shaw says that what they're actually trying to do is inflame difficult situations and weaken your connections to your support network so that you're more dependent on them. At the beginning of the relationship, Bianca noticed her partner was reluctant to let her have friends over. And when people did visit, he was aloof, which would create an awkward tension. He insisted that we move after he had become increasingly paranoid and upset about the time that I was spending with my friends and family. And he often complained about the fact that I spent more time with them than I did with him. It just wasn't true. They moved to the small town that he grew up in, where she knew nobody and no one knew her. Bianca was cut off from her friends and prevented from making new ones. She was also recovering from an eating disorder, which made her more vulnerable. That had seen me hospitalised and very unwell. And I was moved away from the health systems that were keeping me afloat, the friends and family that were helping me. He made himself the single most important person in my life. Research confirms that people with a disability, chronic illness or a mental health condition are generally more vulnerable to abuse. Disability and illness more broadly just amplifies your vulnerability to abuse. If you think about a person not living with impairments or disabilities and that their world is narrowed and their options and their space for action is narrowed as a result of abuse in and of itself when you add disability or illness on top of that the vulnerability is amplified exponentially the abuse is often so carefully tailored around people's particular fragilities and disabilities and insecurity my eating disorder was just such a source of vulnerability for another person it it might be something entirely different and so the tactics of abuse are tailored so differently so understanding that is a really really tricky thing research also repeatedly tells us that isolation is exacerbated in rural and regional areas due to the geographical remoteness service limitations and cultural factors victims can be reluctant to seek help when the police and relevant services know the perpetrator. They can also fear their story will become more widely known in their community. I was never allowed to 
have anyone attend our home. He'd repeatedly respond to requests like that by saying things like, this is my home too, or I'm tired and I don't want to have to deal with some stranger in my space, or you hardly know these people, it's not like they're real friends. So that never eventuated. I was never actually able to have those friends visit me at home. I think in the nine years that we lived in that home, I was allowed to have visitors on three occasions that I can remember. My home was not a place where my friends were welcome. Limiting how often someone can see their family and friends is a common isolation tactic. Really gradually or rapidly breaking off all of those different types of external relationships with people on the outside who might be the check and balance. They might be the voice of reason or they might be just that actual connection with the outside world. Over time, covert forms of isolation can become overt. Seemingly innocuous text messages become brazen demands. Who are you talking to becomes don't use your phone. Where have you been? becomes do not leave the house. And in Bianca's case, her husband's aloofness escalated into cruelty. I also remember an occasion when my friend and her husband were travelling around Australia in their caravan. They turned up at our home while I was still at work and she was trying to enlist my ex's help to surprise me. He just told them to get off our property. It wasn't okay to surprise us like that. And I apologised to her and made up excuses for him. You know, he's not been feeling well. He's not been himself lately or... You know, just trying to make light of it and minimise the situation. Elizabeth Shaw says that when you're dating and getting to know a new partner, you should observe how they interact with the people you love and also how they talk about your friends and family in private. If after the event they start to critique and talk against them, so they might have only met them once, they really don't have enough to go on. So when they start to say are these really good friends or I didn't really like the way they treated you. That again could sound lovely and supportive of you, but it also could be the beginning of starting to plant seeds that really the the best friend you're going to have is this new person and that you should be a bit suspicious of your other friends. We all experience periods of difficulty with friends and family where relationships become strained and tensions are high. Elizabeth says that perpetrators take advantage of these moments, fanning flames of doubt about your relationships with others, hoping to exacerbate the problem, not help you resolve it. If you were to take them to your family and you say, oh, my sister and I have never really got on, instead of actually working to value how you could get on, if they came away saying, well, no wonder I saw your sister have all sorts of digs at you that you didn't even seem to notice... I think it's worse than you thought. That sort of thing sounds loyal, sounds like it's in your interest, but actually is going to cause more trouble in the family. It's painted as something that I'm only here for you, I'm speaking in your interests, but your interests are actually to get on with the people in your life. And an emotionally mature person would come into your life trying to help you with your goals so that if you do have trouble in your family, you'd want a partner to be sympathetic and supportive. You know, that's sad for you how would you like me to manage that what can I do how can I help it isn't well let me validate the trouble and embellish it Ash moved to Australia for love a number of years ago Ash and the man who would go on to abuse her Manu went to neighboring schools overseas her marriage was arranged by her family and she moved to Australia after the wedding to live with her husband this left her far away from the people who cared about her most and her husband stopped her from forming new friendships I knew no one here. I barely left the house. 
I had no purpose. My thoughts would wander off to how incredible it would have been if I was home, if I was with my parents, with my dogs, with my neighbors, with all the fun and the food and the people and the community. Manu systematically cut Ash off from her country, family and culture. He limited her contact with people in Australia by telling her how dangerous the country was, warning her not to leave the house. She was told it was too unsafe to even go for a run. If you're a migrant or refugee woman, you're relying on your partner to explain our culture, to explain the systems and processes of how we do things and why we do things. And that gives a perpetrator, someone who abuses your trust, an opportunity to be manipulative and to demonstrate family violence by withholding critical information, by not allowing you to have the truth to make decisions and empower yourself in your life. That was Michal Morris, CEO of InTouch, a domestic and family violence service that works with migrant and refugee communities. She says a person's visa status can be weaponised against them. We can't pick and choose when we fall in love. And then when we give that power of where we live and how we live to somebody else, that can be abused and be a form of coercive control. Someone can sponsor you one day and if you don't do what they say, they can take away that sponsorship and then you are left here illegally. When she first arrived in Australia, Ash was unable to work because of visa restrictions. But when her spousal visa was processed, she told her husband that she wanted to find a job. Manu disagreed. But love, why do you need the money? We're living in this pretty incredible house. I'm driving you around in this luxury car. You have everything you need. Why do you need to work? There was always these conversations about gratefulness, like why am I not being grateful? about everything that I have and why do I keep pushing for work or volunteering. Isolation occurs under a pretext of kindness with pseudo-caring comments like you don't need to work, I'll take care of you. But unemployment creates a financial power imbalance between a victim and their partner as well as a barrier to leaving. After a year, I started realising that My gosh, I have all of these brilliant ideas and education to back me up. It's going to waste. And so I wanted to volunteer. And that's when it started getting really bad for me. Economic isolation tactics can present themselves in different ways. Without access to money, a victim has limited autonomy and independence. Even if they are working, they might have their salary paid into an account they don't control. Perpetrators can also use violence or undermining behaviours to stop their partner from going to work, such as causing bruises that can't be hidden or hiding car keys or uniforms. Ash says that looking back, she suspects her perpetrator was drugging her. Every time I had an interview or a volunteering opportunity, I would miss it because I'd sleep all the way till two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon and wake up feeling completely groggy. He would have woken me up the previous night, very sweetly put the pillow behind my back, sat me up in the middle of the night while I was asleep and then he'd tell me, oh, love, here you go, here's your chai latte. I heard your stomach growl 
while you were sleeping and I didn't want you to continue sleeping while you were hungry. It took about five years to work that out. Ash says that often she'd sleep all day and she'd struggle to get basic things like cooking or cleaning done and she didn't know why. He'd be so lovely on the phone and he'll tell me, sweetheart, that's totally okay. But I didn't know until the relationship ended that he was actually assassinating my character to everyone back home and my family member here saying she barely cooks, she sleeps all day. She doesn't do anything about finding work or looking for opportunities. By this point, Asha's partner had also become physically abusive and her family didn't know. People from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are generally less likely than members of other groups to have access to appropriate support. Language, social, cultural and religious differences create additional barriers. Barriers that mainstream family violence services often don't accommodate. Shame and stigma is such a powerful form of control. Community is important to us all. And to lose community through shame of stigma, of acknowledging what's going on, cripples too many people, particularly when your behaviours are going to impact your family back home. One of the really debilitating things that can happen is that you are ashamed and embarrassed of what your life is. It's nothing like you expected. And you think about a lot of migrant refugee women who have come here for the relationship because they believe this is where their future is. Alex Bunton had a successful career and public profile when she was in a violent relationship. She says the success from her basketball career only compounded her shame. I just wanted everything to be okay. I was in the public eye, so I didn't want people to see me in this failed relationship or a a, a DV relationship. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking that it was a DV relationship. But that continued on for almost a year. Alex's partner broke down her sense of self, isolated her from her support network and encouraged her to retire. When Alex was pregnant, the abuse became physical, which is sadly not unusual. Research shows that pregnant people are at a greater risk of domestic and family violence. Alex said that it took her several attempts to leave. I remember one time wanting to leave and I started walking away. And I thought, as I was walking, I was like, I have nowhere to go. Who am I going to go to? Like get in my car and drive three hours. But I knew that I couldn't do that. I didn't have my keys. And I was thinking, where do I go? What do I do? And he came after me and pulled me by my hair. And he said the same words that were running through my head. He's like, where are you going to go? Bianca ended up having children with Simon. And during this time, she was constantly monitored, surveyed, gaslit, and physically and emotionally abused. Her workplace was her only lifeline. When people weren't allowed to visit her at home and her phone was monitored, it also became a rare safe space for people to reach out to her. One day, Bianca's close friend showed up at her work. She'd noticed that things weren't quite right and she gave Bianca $1,000 in cash telling Bianca to leave it in her filing cabinet at work, just in case. Little actions like that one that just indicate the severity of the situation that you're in or just give you a, that image of, 
I'm taking this very seriously. I care about you. You're important enough for me to put myself out to say and do this thing. Those are very powerful messages to hear, even when you're not quite ready to hear it. I never used the money. I never actually used any money from her at all, but I knew that she was there because of this action that she had taken, which was her way of letting me know that she cared. Ash, on the other hand, didn't have a workplace or a local support network to lean on. After her husband left, he cut off access to power and water, signed a lease into her name without telling her, and revoked her spousal visa. She was devastated and desolate. She also felt a sense of shame in letting her family down. It wasn't until she connected with two women he'd previously dated and married that her outlook changed. When I heard these two women talk about those things that have happened, it was so horrific to realise that it's exactly the same things. And then that's when I realised this isn't okay. And talking to those two people is what helped a lot where I kept blaming myself, when I heard them blaming themselves is when I could see, oh my gosh, why are they blaming themselves about it? It was when Alex Bunton's partner drained their bank account on her birthday that she left for good. When Opal May was born, she reconnected with her parents who helped Alex raise her daughter. Alex was advised to lay low, stay off social media and avoid the public spotlight after leaving. But in her case... This only exacerbated her shame. Telling her story was a way to get her power back. Now Alex has found her voice. She's returned to basketball and initiated a domestic and family violence awareness round for her team, the UC Capitals. I have my daughter and I want to be a good example for her. I was like, there's no way I can't say something. There's no way I I can't use my basketball platform feels like this is not just about me anymore. So my confidence and my ability to talk about what I went through came from other people. The antidote to isolation is community and connections. It was relationships outside the emotional and physical violence in their homes that helped the people you've met in this episode to escape and heal. Moo Bolch says that some of the crucial work frontline services do for victim survivors after they're out of the initial crisis phase, is to encourage that person to reconnect with old loved ones. Who were those people in your life before all of this happened? Who were your two or three key people that you went to and they loved you and they laughed with you and they cried with you no matter what was going on, they didn't judge you? These relationships don't just help people to heal, but they also make it more difficult for a perpetrator to isolate them in the first place. Where we go to seek help is through our friends and our family. Where we learn that you can get help for family violence is our friends and our family. When you're in the early stages of dating, Elizabeth Shaw encourages you to consciously maintain those relationships. She also suggests creating internal signposts to measure how your new relationship is really going. Okay, well, we've now been dating for three months. Am I actually feeling better about my life and better about the relationships that I have Or worse, the things that I worried about three months ago, are they improving or not? Not just in relation to your partner, but your life generally. Whether that's at the one, two or three month mark, when you reach that signpost, ask yourself those important evaluative comments. 
And if you say, well, actually, now I think about it for three months, I haven't seen my friends and I've seen my family less often and they're starting to complain they haven't seen me lately, you could ask yourself, have I thrown myself into the relationship too much? But is there anything that's happening in that relationship that's actually making it less likely that I'll see the people that are important to me? And if you're noticing someone in your life is being isolated in their relationship, Elizabeth says you can raise it, but raise it gently and declare that your intentions are to support them no matter what. I think it's important to put that in there. Look, as a friend, my relationship with you is really important and I'll back you, whoever you're with, I'm here for you. So I just want to raise something could be difficult, but it's because I want the best for you. I think if you declare the good intentions, it helps just to be aware whatever you raise might trigger embarrassment or shame. So I think, first of all, just say, look, I've just noticed a few times this or that happened. Did you notice that? Even just to say, did you notice that? Elizabeth says to end the conversation with another declaration of support for your friend and to remain patient afterwards. If you've had enough relationships, you know that when you're attached to someone and they're letting you down, you tend to focus on the positive. And so you'll hear something like, oh, well, he's lovely most of the time, or he treats me so beautifully. And I think you've got to expect that that's the reasons why it can be hard to speak up is because we're always doing this sort of gymnastics. How many good things are there to outweigh that? It's a hard road to make a decision that something's unacceptable. One of the safest things you can do is be a gentle support so that you can be this person's mirror when they're ready and when they need it. You don't know who's going through abuse, but if you make it a policy of being supportive and reflecting the good things about each other. You can't go wrong. Next week on There's No Place Like Home, we'll explore gaslighting. The defining factor of gaslighting is that it's an intentional behaviour. It's a manipulation of your emotions and it's in doing so, they invalidate your memories, your lived experiences and you start to question your whole perception of reality. See you then. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you're worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team. Contact them on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash nextchapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It'll help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Emily Brooks, Mel Fulton, Sally Spicer, Hannah Fahur and Tarang Chavla. Editing by Bad Producer Productions, artwork by Paddy Andrews.